Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Alicia Fernandez Miranda has written a wonderfully funny, charming, and self-deprecating memoir about a year in her life. A year that set her on a new course with a new understanding of just what that course ought to be. As Alicia Menendez writes, my what-if year is like a bomb for the soul of every overachiever who has ever wondered what is on the other side of having it all. With irreverence, unflinching honesty, and irresistible warmth, Miranda gives us permission to get curious, hold tight to the wisp of a new idea, and honor the voice that whispers, what if there is more? This book is the perfect choice to be the inaugural offering of a brand new publisher, Zibby Books, one that has already made its mark with my what if year. To say that I'm proud of Alicia is an understatement. Her first internship, her first job actually, was at Books and Books when she was only 14 years old. And even then, the wide-eyed optimism, sense of humor, and brilliance was front and center. This edition of The Literary Life with Alicia was recorded live at Books and Books in Carl Gable's Florida. Alicia. Mitchell. It is so good to see you here. I am overjoyed to be back here. Do you know that I calculated that it's been 27 years since you and I sat down and had a long face-to-face conversation? Oh, my God. And you were 14 years old at the time, (laughs) and you were working at the original bookstore, which was across the street from where we are now. Yeah. So... What have you been doing? What have I been doing since I was 14? My goodness. I mean, that was my very first job. And I had always loved books. And it was it was just a joy. Like, I think I learned from that moment on that work was supposed to be something you really, really enjoyed. So probably I have you to credit for everything that has happened since then. Because, uh, you know, that was such a... I just remember that time as just such a blissful time of being surrounded by books and meeting authors and all of that. So I finished high school, left Miami, went to Harvard for college, continued working in bookstores. I worked at the Harvard bookstore up there for several years. And then I kind of, uh, I kind of just pursued 
what I thought was the path I was going to be on. You know, I was always a really ambitious, energetic person and wanted to do very, very well. So I finished college, went to graduate school in London, very quickly kind of got on the career path. I was working in philanthropy and social impact. So uh, consulting to companies and wealthy people on how to give their money away and do that most effectively and do some good for the world and just kind of ticking, ticking along. I moved to London, got married. I had two kids and continue to take sort of increasingly, uh, you know, well-titled, well-paid jobs until I was CEO of my own company shortly before I had my mini midlife crisis and decided to write this book. Well, I remember when you called me and you told me that you were working on a book. And I think we were, it was the pandemic yeah. was going on at the time. And you told me about what the concept of the book was. And it was really intriguing. But I was a little confused, I, to be honest. Mm. I wasn't sure exactly where it was going. And I have to tell you just how marvelous this book is. It, it made me feel, even though we hadn't been together for so very long, that it was so intimate mm. that I really got a sense of knowing you and knowing your voice. And I can tell you that you are as charming and imaginative and brilliant as the little 14-year-old girl oh, that well, I knew thank when you. I first met you at the bookstore. Um, and it wasn't just that uh, uh, that you walked into the store. We knew each other through our families That's going right. back then. Alicia's grandfather and my father mm -hmm. were law partners. That's right. Isn't that wild? Yeah. I mean, this is a real celebration of so many different things. Yeah. And such a sense of memory. And, and, and you went on to do what you went to do. And what's really interesting is when I've been telling people about this book as I've been hand-selling it, Customers. You're the best. I tell them who you are and what you've done, and the fact that you started out in a Cuban American, a Jewish, mm -hmm. Cuban American family here in Miami. Yeah. Uh, always brilliant, always interesting. I mean, how many fourteen-year-olds are working in bookstores, right? Yeah. And that was your choice oh, to yeah. want to do that. I put you on the spot, if you recall. I asked you for that job in front of all of my classmates. <laughs> and no, you I don't no remember that. But to say yes, I would have said yes anyway. But. But when I tell about, you know, your journey of where you went, you went to Harvard, then you went to the London School of Economics, then you married your, your was it your high school sweetheart? My, uh, we were introduced by our grandmothers. So we met in graduate school, but our dads grew up together, our grandmothers grew up together. And then you ended up on the Isle of Skye, and you were living in Scotland. Yeah. And everybody says, what a life. But then you read the book, My What If Year, mm. and even when you have a life that can be described as exciting and different and unusual, there was that kernel of what? I think it was this, it was the question of what if, which ends up in the title. It was the question of what else. And it was sort of a reevaluating of success and the definitions of success that I had set that had been set for myself. You know, this feeling that, I finally got all the things I was chasing and yet I wasn't happy and feeling guilty that that was the case and not really knowing why that was the case, but just knowing I had to do something else. I had to be somewhere else and it becoming so overpowering of a thought that it started to just drive all of my decisions and my focus. Before we get into the actual, um, the actual internships, there's one line in your book, and there's something that you say that is so self-revelatory, and it made me really start thinking. Um, 
of very successful people who are driven, people like you, mm. who are driven, who cut off certain parts of their life because they may not feel they're as good at it and they may not succeed. Right. Talk about that just a I... There were always lots of things that I loved doing. I loved writing. You know, I was going through this big box of old things I had at my parents' house today, and I found all of these short stories I had written when I was in high school and middle school. Uh, I, you know, I loved singing, and I loved art, and I loved all of these really creative things, but not only did they not seem practical for, you know, what I needed to do, which was get a job, succeed, make money, do all of those things, but you know, I was never going to be the star. I was never going to be the best at it. And so gradually, I just put all of those things to the side. I didn't feel like they were things that if I couldn't do them the best I possibly could, then why do them at all? I should just be leaning into the strengths that I knew I was good at and following that path. But I did that so much that I sort of completely abandoned or neglected these other parts of me, these really rich parts of my background and my interests and my passions. And I just, I, I left them alone for so many years. And I think that that is something that is easy to do when you are a person who is wants to achieve and that is something that's very important to you. It's important to be good at things. You're afraid of failure, which I definitely was, that you know maybe you stop paying attention to the things that bring you joy because they're not the things that you're the best at. You know, it's interesting. Just the other day, I was talking to a very, very accomplished woman, and I was in her office, and we were talking. And I was talking a little bit about your book and about you and about um, what was going to happen tonight. And she looked at me and she said, you know, I can relate to that, because I think to myself all the time, what am I doing sitting behind this desk? Mm. She said, I'm a very creative person and I want to be among people, but what am I doing sitting behind this desk? So I said, you have to come tonight and meet Alicia. Oh, good. And she will, uh, and I'm sure you've been hearing that as you've been touring. Your passions that you didn't follow. Mm. You then had a very unique way of how you were going to confront this period of... Um, dissatisfaction mm. that you were feeling. Yeah. Talk about what you decided. So, you know, as you know from having worked with me since I was 14, you know, I like working. I like being busy. I like getting under the skin of a job and learning about it and being around people. And so, you know, I, I had always loved, a lot of the seed of this was from a love I have had since I was a child of musical theater. I've always loved musicals. And I would go see a musical and be on the audience side of things and just think, God, wouldn't it be amazing to be on the other side, to be in the rehearsal room? And I would do anything. I know I have no experience or like talent to bring to this situation, but I can get people coffee. I can fold playbills. I can clean bathrooms. And so this idea of just kind of doing anything I could to help in exchange for being a part of something like a musical had been in the back of my head for a while. And I articulated it to a couple girlfriends of mine. And we started talking about, yeah, well, maybe you could do an internship. And what else would you intern in? And so we had this kind of like martini-fueled night. We came up with all these different ideas. Many were very ridiculous. You know, we got to like shrimp farmer and, you know, local government official, all of these different things. And then... We left, but the idea was still with me. And I had this list in my phone of, you know, what would the things that I would do. So once I kind of got through the, uh, you know, emotional barriers of really... You were living in London. I was living in London at the time. 
And I got, I went about eight months just thinking, this is the craziest idea I've ever had. And there's absolutely no way I could turn this into a reality. But when I decided to do it, the plan was to go and put myself forward as an unpaid intern at jobs I always wanted to do when I was a kid and kind of take these mini sabbaticals throughout a year and just experience them, learn about these different careers that I was fascinated by, art and fitness and marine biology and, you know, working at Disney and all of these things that I had always dreamt of and just say, I will come, I will work for you for free for a month or two months if you would let me. And all I'm asking for in exchange is the opportunity to learn and I would do anything like literally anything you want me to do I started planning through 2019 right. planning and dithering and not being able to do it but that was a lot of my 2019 January of 2020 that Feb you started, 2020 Feb 2020 you started your very first I one. started my very first Talk one so I had a very good friend's father uh, John Weidman who is a writer of many musicals um, I told him what I was doing and he said you know look no one who's at this sort of professional level of Broadway and off-Broadway really needs your help. They know what they're doing. They've done it before. However, let me float this idea by a few people that I know and ask them if they'd be willing to let you come shadow and maybe you can make yourself helpful, you know, while you're there. And so he sent out a bunch of emails and very quickly two came back. Um, one from John Doyle, who's a legendary Scottish director, and he was mounting a production of Assassins at the Classic Stage Company. And he said, come make it your home for a month. We'll see if we can use you for anything. And then James Lapine, who is also a legend in musical theater, and he was working on a show called Flying Over Sunset at Lincoln Center. They were already in tech. So that was really just going to be a chance to observe a Broadway production getting ready to open. And so I got on a plane on February 29th, 2020, and I really just put I put myself in there, you know. To do both of them at the same time. To do both time. at the same time. So tech was rehearsing at one period of time. They weren't on the same timetable, so it was going to be feasible to be able to do both. But, you know, again, I think I really had to, I really had to put myself in situations where I was being helpful because, you know, these are professionals. Like they didn't, you know, and I didn't know what I was doing. So I probably could have just sat there very happily observed. But as you read in the book, I was trying very, very hard to do something, feel like I was part of it. And you did. Yeah, and I did. you did. And you did. And we met some fascinating people. Talk about the time you almost killed Stephen. Oh, Sons. gosh. <laughs> So this is day one of Assassins. It was a meet and greet. And uh, I was running late because I'm usually running late, which is like the worst habit that I have. But I get lost in New York all the time. And I was very frazzled. I was very nervous. And so I was staring into my phone, trying to figure out if I was going to the right place to make it on time for 11 o'clock. And I kind of, I'm like walking down 60th Street and I'm so confused and I'm lost. And I bump into this man and I immediately step back. I can see he's older. I kind of steady him. And I'm like, I'm so, I'm so, so sorry, sir. I'm so sorry. And when I see his stricken face, I realize that it is the legend, Stephen Sondheim, who wrote Assassins, which is, of course, why he was there. And just like I couldn't, like my mouth, my jaw just dropped to the floor. People were kind of like startled. And then, you know, he just nodded off, went into the building. And then I waited outside for like another two minutes because I was too afraid to go in too close to him. And then I just avoided him the rest of the time because I didn't want him to realize that I was the person that had bumped into him outside of the room. I love the space. way you won everyone over as well because you came in and they didn't really know what you were doing there. <laughs> but you won even the most sour of people. I sure know. tried. I think if I had had my full time there, that even... Carmen, who I talk about in the book, would have been my friend. I was really working the 
kill because him what we all angle. remember <laughs> is what happened in the end of February, the beginning of March of 2020. Yeah, it was. So, you know, things were progressively starting to get worse. My husband, of course, was back in London with my children, you know, panic buying and a little, a little bit of calling me every day, sort of being like, do you think you should come back? Do you think, you know, what, what do you want to do? And I was like, no, no, this is all going to blow over. This is going to be fine. Everyone is overreacting in the whole world. And, you know, don't worry about that. Because I was living my dream. There was no way I wanted to let myself imagine that it could be over so soon. And when things happened, they happened very, very quickly. So it was the invited dress rehearsal for Flying Over Sunset. After years and years of work, they were about to open on previews, you know, in the Broadway theater at Lincoln Center. And all of a sudden, you start getting kind of news updates that night. One usher at one of the shows had gotten COVID, so they shut down that show. And then it was a second show that was shut down. And by intermission of the invited dress rehearsal, when I turned on my phone, it was full of messages and Trump had announced he was closing the borders and blocking all European flights. And so I knew I had to get home. And the following day was when they announced they were shutting down all Broadway theaters, which was really, truly shocking. It had not been done for more than two days. 9-11 theaters were shut for two days. It hadn't been done. And, you know, I think everybody was so completely floored. And I was sort of in the office of this theater company as it was all unfolding live. It was very, very surreal. I'm sure it was. And then you did go back to London. And then your whole family, you moved everyone to moved Scotland. everyone up to Scotland. So we had a house in a very rural part of Scotland. It My, sounds beautiful. It is very beautiful. Very rainy, but very beautiful. My husband was like absolutely convinced the entire, everything was going down. He was like, the banking systems are going to crash. He was like, we got to get out of the city. So he was like a prepper waiting, just waiting for something to happen. So we started our consulting business together that I had become CEO of. So also, he's an entrepreneur. He started three businesses, but also in the kind of social good and charitable and philanthropy space. So while you were doing this, Carlos was keeping his Carlos had come step back in and taking care of the kids and you know our wonderful nanny was there too so it wasn't all by himself but um, you know he was really it was very very scary and I think he was worried his biggest fear that I was going to get stuck in the U.S. and not be able to come back but you were very resourceful even during the pandemic you would not give up on this one if year no so you then moved into another field the field of fitness virtual fitness and um, yeah I I have to tell you I love (laughs) I love reading about all of the different fitness classes you took because the woman you were interning with said, why don't you just take all these classes so I yeah. know what's out there? This was like market research. You know, it's a classic intern task. So, you know, I, I like everybody, we sort of got into lockdown. The kids were out of school. Everybody was freaking out. Well, the entire world changed on a dime. Nobody had heard of Zoom before no. the pandemic. No, right? and we were, you know, and it just did not seem... All, the whole list of things that I had wanted to do involved being somewhere, being in an art gallery, being in a marine biology laboratory or being somewhere. But all of a sudden, virtual fitness was like becoming a thing during the pandemic because people couldn't go to the gym anymore. And so every person who had ever been a personal trainer or taught a class was trying to pivot online. And I had a good friend who had set up her own fitness business. And I had seen her doing an Instagram live from her like teeny tiny little living room in London. And I just I sent her a message. I said, remember when I joked a few months ago that maybe you should hire me as your intern one day? I was like, can I do it now, please? I'm so desperate. 
I just couldn't imagine letting it go. I had done so much planning and prep. I wanted to do it so badly. I felt really cut short, you know, out of my New York time. And she very gratefully said yes. So my main tasks for her were doing her social media posts. I don't know why. I was like older than her and like still trying to figure it all out. And then trying dozens of different fitness classes and kind of doing a big spreadsheet for her where I wrote down how much they cost, what the class was like, and all of the details. Tell me some of the more unusual ones. Oh my gosh. Well, I did a class called Voga, Voguing Yoga. And you have to have like a name. I mean, it's all some of these things I think they're amazing in a studio. You know, I can imagine being in a Voga class with a bunch of other women in a room and you're feeling the music and you're sweating together and you know, you get an aura of that. When you're doing it in your living room all by yourself, you know, I like pulled a muscle like two minutes in because nobody was there to correct me. And it was very, very strange. I did this Australian aerobics class and this woman had like a full production studio. I don't know how she pulled it together in the pandemic, but the whole thing was pink. She was in pink and pink leotards and she had this unicorn that she would like ride across the room in between the breaks. I did meditations. I did Vixen, which is like a Miami fitness trend actually that I had taken classes in Miami and then was trying to do that online. And you could really see some people really did it very, very well. They engaged and connected with the people at home. Some people it was just not not an experience that you but would want that, to repeat. What does that say about the resilience of all of us? Did you learn about the resilience? One hundred percent. And I and Frankie, who was my boss for that internship, she was really so such. A, you know, she was a small business owner. She had really put everything into starting this fitness brand. She had been doing incredibly well teaching in person classes in London, and all of a sudden, when the pandemic hit, that could have been her entire. Everything she had worked for was gone overnight. And instead of sitting around and just thinking, okay, well, there's nothing else I can do, she was like, right, what do I need to do now? People still need to work out. They're going to do it in their living room. She was constantly pushing, testing, trying different things. And I really, really admired her ability to pivot and not to give up. And honestly, it's, you know, part of what inspired me to keep going as well when everything was crumbling around me. And you did, and you did. And then it opened up a little bit which allowed you to then yeah. pursue your love of the art. That's right. I had my valley between the two UK lockdowns where I was very productive. I got two internships done in that time. That sounded very exciting. It was as exciting as it sounds. I mean, really, you know, I was working for a contemporary art dealer and he works at the very high end of the market. So top, top, top tier paintings and sculptures. Uh, you know, we're getting to handle David Hockney's and Picasso's and Damien Hirst's and Frida Kahlo's. I mean, these really, these pieces of art that you only ever get to see in a museum. And Ed Ruscha, of course. And Ed Ruscha, I don't know how to say his name now. That took me a little while to figure out. And just, you know, learning and researching and being out and about again and going to galleries and everything felt magical during that time. You know, I think every experience, being able to be with art and to experience art with other people now, was amazing. Now, when you read the book, you'll, you'll notice how self-deprecating Alicia is. But what, what she's not going to probably tell you, but I will. But I'm not, it's not a spoiler. But each one of these people would give their eye tooth or eye teeth to have Alicia work with them on a full-time <laughs> basis. So she was virtually had her choice of any of the jobs that she might want to do um, after the internships. Particularly, she was particularly well-suited, and I think it's because she worked at Books and Books to be a saleswoman. Indeed. When she was in that art world, <laughs> I just felt she had found, she found her mark by selling selling art. I loved, loved it. it. I, I loved it. And there's so much that goes into the selling because it's not, 
It's not like, it's kind of, it's like selling books though. In a way you are selling a feeling, you're selling an experience, you're selling a new way to think about yourself. That's what art gives people. So it's not just about the thing they buy or the transaction of buying and selling. It's about giving people something that is going to change how they feel. So that's the one internship, my final one, which will never have me back, Mitchell, as nice as you are, because I could not have been worse at waitressing, checking people in and out, bartending, which is what I was doing at a very small restaurant and hotel on the Isle of Skye in Scotland. So this ended up being my final internship. I wasn't sure when I started it that it would be my last one, but it did end up being my last one. And I was kind of on a rotation. So I was doing all the different things that you do when you are part of a staff team at a small hotel and restaurant. I was polishing silverware. I was folding napkins, ironing tablecloths, serving appallingly badly, like really dropping food, spilling bottles of Coke on myself, you know, just the clumsiest human you could ever imagine. And checking people into the wrong rooms, like I couldn't even really manage that task. And then finally they let me file in the office, which, which I was really good at because I'm good at organizing things. But um, while I do have a wonderful continuing professional relationship with them, even at the times when they've been like the most short staffed and I'm like, guys, do you want me to come back and do a shift? Do you want me to do the dinner shift tonight? They're like, no, no, no. It's fine. I just make, You're fine where you are. <laughs> please, please tell me that it didn't ruin the love you have of that place. No, which but. is amazing because I still, no, it feels even more special. And that is what Isabella, who owns the hotel, she was worried about that. She said, you know, you are one of our, you know, favorite clients. She says that to all the clients, but she said it to me. She said, what if I'm worried that if you see what happens behind the scenes, you won't want to come back. Um, but it was the opposite experience. I developed a new appreciation for what it's like actually to be behind the scenes running it. All the work and effort that goes into making someone's experience when they're staying away from home on vacation be truly magical, you know. So, no, didn't ruin it at all. So, what did you learn about yourself mostly in this whole year, this what if year? I learned... I learned so much. I learned so much in doing the year. I learned so much in writing about the year because I had to really go back and reflect on the whys of why I was doing everything. I think the biggest thing that I learned was that a lot of the limitations that I had set or that I thought existed, I'm not good at this art, this right-brained, you know, artistic, creative thing. I could never do this. All of those things were imagined limits, imagine barriers that I had set for myself because I had this idea of what I was good at and what I wasn't good at, what I was capable of and what I wasn't capable of. And as soon as I decided to step out of that little box I had made for myself, I realized that was, there were all these other things that I could do and maybe I wouldn't do them as well as some of the things I had been doing, but that didn't matter because the value in just trying them, the value in trying them and failing them was helping me grow as a person. And did you, did you imagine that these internships would lead you to what could be your true calling, which is writing? No. I mean, that was this, like, beautiful gift. It's like the fifth internship, I say, at the end of it. So, no. I mean, you know, originally when I set out to do the project, I thought I had convinced myself that I was going to have these experiences and then come back and everything would go back to normal and I would feel good. So I'd be able to continue on the path that I had been on. And then after going through the internships and the experiences without spoiling it for anybody you know the realization was really actually I don't want to go back at all I do need to make some bigger changes in my life I need to change how I approach my whole career I need to change how I think about success and that's what I'm going to do and then the writing of it was just you know I started writing because I was journaling really 
uh, you know, taking very detailed journals of my experiences. I knew I wanted to remember it. Then COVID happened and I knew I was going to want to remember that because even in the worst parts, it was an extraordinary time, I think, in human history that I wanted to record. And when I started putting my experiences in narrative form and digesting them in that way, I just came to love that process of writing. Something else I had dropped by the wayside because I didn't think I was very good at it or it would be my career. And it did become another road that you took. And so talk about what led you to this very unique new publisher mm. that you happened to be their very first book. I mean, truly, Mitchell, it was your advice. Like, I'm not just saying that because I'm on your podcast. You and I spoke. So I had written a draft of something. I was looking for an agent. I was querying kind of, you know, left, right, and center and reaching out to people I knew to ask, especially people in the field who knew other people and who had good advice. And you said to me, you know, you should try to publish some things and get your name out there because then when you're actually going to look for an agent or a publisher and you have some clips behind you, you know, that would be a good thing since you're brand new to this field. So in my search of places to publish, I came across a blog called Moms Don't Have Time to Write. Uh, and it was Zibby Owens's first blog before what's now become Zibby Mag. And I submitted an essay, which was a piece that was from the fitness part of the book. And she wrote me back within 24 hours. And she, in her like, just trademark Zibby energy. And she was like, I love this. I'm going to publish it. I want to know everything about you. Who are you? What are you doing? Let's get on a Zoom call like right away. So we get on a Zoom call the next day. She's just this like energetic, you know, full of ideas. At the time, the podcast was really picking up. But, you know, she had all of these different ideas, as she does now, of all these things she wanted to do. And so we stayed in touch. She was extremely generous. She offered to take a look at my proposal. I, I reached out to her when I got my agent. And I said, you know, thank you so much for all the advice you gave me. I published another piece with her. And then I got a two-line email from her in July 2021 as we were getting ready to send out my package to different publishers. And she just said, I'm starting a publishing company. Have you sold your book yet? I want to I publish your book. And I got on the phone with her. And she said, I don't have a team. I don't know what I'm doing yet. But if you can hold on, I really want to do this with you. And, you know, I just had like a good feeling about it. I liked her. I trusted her. And, you know, we waited uh, about six weeks and then they started to pull things together. And I also came back to you for advice then as well. And you gave me some great advice. You said, you know, this seems like, Zibby seems amazing and this seems like a great opportunity. And it was kind of a no-brainer. At no point did I ever really think I wasn't going to be publishing this with her. And so this road has been wild and so extraordinary. I'm the first book that Zibby Books is putting out. It's going to be a book a month for, you know, hopefully the foreseeable future. They've got the first two years already lined up. And it's a woman-run company. It's all books by women. And they're just treating me like a princess. And, and I love it. And this is almost the end of your very first week. And it's been a whirlwind I cannot week. believe it's only been a week. Like, it hasn't even been a week. It's been like five days. And you've been all... I, you were even... I loved seeing the picture of your book in Times Square. That was incredible. You were... Talk about that week. What so, have you done oh my school? gosh. So I, you know, flew in from Scotland on Sunday. That's not even a week ago. And Monday morning, I was on Good Morning America with Zibby. It was as incredible as you think it would be. My next internship is going to be TV because I have decided I really love doing TV. And I've done interviews now with CNN, MSNBC, with ABC and PIX11 in New York. I have some other local media coming up on my tour. Um, I did an event, a launch event at The Strand in New York with America Ferreira and Conversation. And 
I've just, and then I've been meeting all these people who are like really excited about the book and who are saying exactly what your friend that you were talking to are saying. This sounds like me. This is where I am in my life. And thank you for writing this story because it's helping me think about what I want to do. What greater gift could any writer possibly ask for than readers connecting with their story? You know what I loved about it is that it's truly a memoir. It's not a kind of, it's not a kind of self-help book. Mm. It's truly a memoir. It's truly in your voice telling your story. Mm. And people reading it then reflect upon your story yeah. and see how it relates to them. Yeah. And your journey is filled with humor and it's filled with self-deprecation and it's filled with insight. And you've done something very miraculous here. And well, I just want to say that uh, whatever um, influence this, you know, that this bookstore had in that little 14-year-old, I am <laughs> extremely proud to be part of this whole process. And I constantly am amazed at the circularity of, yeah. of life no, in so many true. different ways. It's so, very true. But would you read a little something from it? That We would love that. Sure. And I would love whatever you whatever you want to select. This is from the fitness section, and uh, as we were discussing, this is from the uh, market research portion of my, of my experience. Other classes you could tell were awesome in person, in dark rooms with flashing lights and sweaty bodies, but did not translate very well to the privacy or distractions of one's living room. I did one awkward session of Vixen, a straightforward concept, sexy dancing, and a lot of touching yourself. Unsurprisingly, Vixen was invented in my hometown of Miami. A few times I had taken a Vixen class in person while visiting my parents, and the experience was, as we say in Miami, so Miami. The kind of dancing we used to do at parties and clubs in high school, only now it was branded and you wouldn't get detention for doing it. The moves had names like riding around and getting it and sex bombs, and my personal favorite, milkshakes. In-person Vixen classes were so much fun, with amazing cardio and a definite vibe, Sultry with a sweat-induced humidity and music too loud to hear yourself think. You could really feel the bass line. But it was difficult to recreate that sexy magic at home, in my living room, groping myself in broad daylight. It was hard to hear Beyonce over the children running around the house screaming, Can you hear me now? Over! On their new walkie-talkies. I actually had to stop when I almost gave the mailman a heart attack as he dropped off a package while I was mid-twerk. Gong baths also suffered online, as I noted when I took a class from one of RetroGlow's competitor studios. Gong bath is based on lying down with your eyes closed, listening to someone play Tibetan bowls, or hence the name, a gong. It stretched the definition of fitness, but the class was listed in the studio's fitness section, so as far as I was concerned, it counted. Gong bath experts claim that the vibrations of the gong are meant to create unity between your brain waves and the sound. I have no idea if that is scientifically proven, but I can vouch for the fact that I left previous in-person gong baths feeling like I had just eaten a pan of pot brownies. Lying on my bedroom floor in my virtual gong bath, I felt less than zen. Once again, house noise abounded. I tried my best to relax as the meditation began. Through the laptop, the instructor told me to say your affirmations with your hand on your heart center. I love myself. I believe in myself. There was a third one, but I couldn't hear what it was over my husband yelling at the twins to quiet down because mommy was relaxing upstairs. There were moments when, breathing deeply on the floor of my bedroom, I did feel calmer. But then the internet connection went patchy. We must celebrate the microwaves, I thought I heard, as the instructor cut in and out. 
through the tinny speakers of my laptop, the gong sounded less like it was sending out reverberations to pass over me like the crest of a wave, and more like the ringing of an annoying little bell, the kind that a character played by Maggie Smith would use to call her servant in a period drama. Once again, I was foiled. My dog pushed the door open, laid down next to my head, and started snoring. Soon she had drowned out the gong, and it was a lost cause. That gives you a flavor of the, um, the wonderful by What If Year by Alicia Fernandez Miranda. And I have to tell you that your husband had to have been a great sport through all of this. He really was. I mean, I think uh, he's, he, loves, he loves to say that himself. You can ask him and he'll take credit for it. No, he was incredible. I mean, I think once he got around to the idea and realized what we were going to be doing, you know, he was really on board. He knew I needed something was happy to support me and he is just truly a partner you know he stepped up for me and now he is going to go do an internship of his own next month so I will be uh holding oh, that down is the fantastic. fort yeah. I mean he? he's not leaving town so you know he's not really going but he's really he got really into making ramen over lockdown homemade ramen the kind that takes like five days to make and we have a beautiful little ramen restaurant in Edinburgh and the plan is for him to go and work there uh for a little bit each week and kind of take some time and explore his own what-ifs. This is fantastic. I mean, I think you're going to be starting a trend worldwide. I'm so here for everyone that. Everyone doing their what-ifs. <laughs> their what-ifs. Alicia, I am so proud of you. Mm. And I hope everybody out there just, you know, will, will experience Alicia's world for just a little bit by reading my what-if year. Thank you so much for everything, truly, Mitchell. You've been such a mentor to me throughout my life. And to be back here with my book at Books and Books is just kind of beyond my wildest dreams. 